This episode of the Behind the Shield podcast is brought to you by 5.11 Tactical, a company that I've used for well over a decade, and they are offering you a 15% discount on every order. And I will tell you that code in just a moment, but I want to do another product highlight. And I can testify, as with the other ones, through personal experience. I wore a 5.11 uniform way back when I worked for Anaheim Fire in California, so we're talking 13 years ago, and I know for a fact that some of my brothers and sisters I work with still wear some of the clothes that they were given when I was hired there, so some of the job shirts, jackets, and this really kind of resonated with me because I realized so many of the departments I've worked at, there are men and women with lockers crammed with old, worn, frayed uniform. And that really represents wasted budget. So to have uniforms with durability means that you don't have to purchase them as often. Now you can apply that budget elsewhere. Another area they've really focused on is redesigning their women's first responder uniforms. I am a skinny six foot tall man and some of these uniforms I'm issued literally hang off me like a trash bag. And I can imagine it's even worse being a female first responder. So they have really taken that into account and redesigned the cuts so they're far more flattering to the female firefighter, first responder, medic, etc. On top of that, several departments I work for have gone from job shirts to polo shirts. 5.11 has those. And then to underline a product I've already talked about, they have the footwear. I wore the CST slip-on boot for a long time from 5.11. And now the Norris sneaker that you've heard me talk about is a lightweight duty boot that puts far less pressure on the ankles and knees, the back, etc. So as I mentioned before, they are offering you guys a continuous 15% discount. And all you have to do is use the code SHIELD at checkout at 511tactical.com. So once again, code SHIELD at 511tactical.com. Welcome to episode 275 of Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week I am so excited to welcome Steve James. Now, Steve had a full career with the Royal Air Force working in their special operations branch before transitioning out and finding himself in the world of research. Well, that journey took him to studying law enforcement and is now well embedded in the area of resiliency, of counter bias, training simulation, and the effects of sleep deprivation. So as you can imagine, an extremely pertinent conversation that I can't wait for you guys to hear. Before we get to that interview, as I always say, please take a moment, go to whichever podcast app you're listening to this on and subscribe to the show, rate the show. The more five-star ratings we get, the more visible we are for people looking for a podcast like this. And then leave feedback. I love reading your feedback regarding the show as well. And then take social media, email, word of mouth, and share these episodes. The whole goal of this podcast is to get information to everyone that needs to hear it. And we're now approaching 300 episodes of some of the greatest minds on planet Earth. And the more you help me share, the more people we reach, the more lives we change. So with that being said, I introduce to you Steve James. Enjoy. Steve, I want to start by saying thank you so much for taking the time to come on the Behind the Shield podcast. Great. Thank you for having me. And I want to say thank you to Rick George for connecting us as well. He's a, he's a great guy. <laughs> he is. He's amazing. Um, all right. So very first question I always open with, where on planet Earth are we finding you today? Today I'm in uh, Spokane, Washington. Um, 
had to uh, do a little snow shoveling this morning, so I know you're down in sunny Florida. Different experience for Christmas. Yes. But, uh, but Spokane, Washington is, uh, is our new home, and, and my wife and I absolutely love it here. Fantastic. All right. So obviously by your accent, that's not your native state. So very first question then, where, where were you born and then what was your family unit like? Um, so I was born in uh, Benoni in South Africa. Um, although both my parents were Dubliners, born and bred, uh, they, they moved over to, to Africa in the 60s um, to be missionaries. Uh, well, they, they moved over there and then became missionaries. Uh, I was born there um, in 75. Uh, and shortly after, uh, my parents moved back to, to Ireland uh, via New Mexico. Um, so I had a very short stint in America for about seven, eight months when I was uh, a year old. Um, and then uh, back to Dublin by the time I was uh, two. Right. So you still got African passport? I never took up my uh, South African passport. I, um, <laughs> you know, the politics of South Africa in the 70s and 80s was not aligned with my um, with my personal politics, so I, I chose never to to pick up a, a South African passport. So I've always held an Irish passport, even into my journey into the British Army. I, I retained my Irish passport. Brilliant. All right. So um, when they came back to to Ireland, what did your mom and dad do as a career? Um, my oh, good question. Well, my parents separated um, shortly after. My dad was a preacher at the time, which is, you know, kind of his missionary work in, in Africa. Um, he went back to Africa shortly after my parents separated. He, he, I think he spent almost a total of 30 years over there bouncing between South Africa, Swaziland, or what is now Iswati, and uh, Tanzania. And my mom started her own company um, in Ireland, and, and which was impressive for for there wasn't a lot of opportunities for women um, starting businesses in the 70s in Ireland and you know unemployment in Ireland back then was reaching 20 25 percent um, so she was certainly a role model for me back then um, kind of just getting up and taking sort of the hard knocks that life is delta and, and moving on with uh, you know a single single mother with four kids in, in Ireland in the 70s was not easy um, thankfully she met my stepdad uh, he was a farmer, so a lot of my childhood was spent growing up uh, on or around farms. Brilliant. Now, did you have any um, any military in your extended family at all? Just my granddad. Um, again, he was a Dubliner. He he enlisted in the British Army prior to World War II, but uh, he was a, a lifer. He did 10 years in the British Army um, and then transferred across into the Australian Army. But uh, he was actually one of the first 100 paratroopers. Uh, he was Royal Anglians uh, before the war. And then when the war broke out, he, he found out he could earn an extra shilling a day by joining this thing that they were calling the Parachute Regiment. And he thought, I like money. So, uh, so that, yeah, uh, ended up uh, fighting across Europe, North Africa. Um, and then uh, when he transferred into the Australians, uh, went over to Korea. Brilliant. Yeah, you hear the same thing with the um, the 101st, you know, the Band of Brothers story and, and how yeah. yeah, they were just the ones crazy enough to, to try this new <laughs> form of soldiering that no one had even done before. Yeah, yeah. No, it's like, we, you want us to do what now? <laughs> <laughs> I'm all right with getting in the plane, but how do we get out again? Yeah. <laughs> all right. Then obviously, we're going to talk about your, your military career. When you were young, were you a sportsman? I played rugby. Uh, you know, I think, uh, you know, I actually did my secondary education in England. I uh, moved over to England when I think I was 14 years old. Um, so, 
sort of GCSEs and sort of entering A-levels or sixth form, um, which for our American audience would be um, junior, senior in high school uh, in England. And, and back then, I don't know, James, for you, most schools were either soccer schools or rugby schools. Uh, mine was a rugby school, so so that's the sport I played. Uh, and that sort of followed me into my, my military career. Um until I had both my knees dislocated in a, in a rugby game. Uh, so that, that ended that. Um, I picked it back up again later when I went to college, um, but then also fell in love with the beautiful sport of boxing, which is how I met my wife. We both boxed for our college. Oh, really? That's not the yeah. kind of love story you normally hear. No, no. Uh, my, my lame dad joke is uh, she saw me and knew I was a knockout. Uh, <laughs> But no, we uh, we were friends for a few years, uh, both kind of in, in different relationships and whatnot. And then uh, we both happened to be single and um, at the right time. And, and uh, she asked me, which is one of the things that I tell everybody because no one believes it after they meet Lois. Yeah, well, that's two, two unconventional things. Firstly, she was punching you in the face when you were dating. And then secondly, that she asked you. <laughs> yeah. And the third is when we married, I took her last name. So, oh, uh, really? Yeah. So James is, uh, is actually her family name. Very cool. That's a great name. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you're biased though. <laughs> All right. Well, um, speaking of that, so you're in, you're in college now. What were your career aspirations when you were a young man? Well, I actually I, I had a very untraditional path to where I got to now, um, let alone I didn't graduate high school. I didn't do my A-levels, which would in, in the America be a high school diploma. Um, I left without doing my senior year. Um, and, and joined the the military at 17 um, as an enlisted soldier uh, in the infantry. But uh, I joined a very odd unit. Um, we were uh, an infantry unit attached to the Air Force called the RAF Regiment, which was formed in uh, World War II uh, in, in the deserts of North Africa when uh, the, the Royal Air Force needed protection and they couldn't rely on the army to to garrison or to to give them infantry units to to protect the air assets so the royal air force uh formed its own infantry unit um which would then uh be- become the RAF regiment um half was uh surface to air missile systems um by the time i joined in the 90s i joined in 92 um and the uh, the other half were um, light infantry, uh, with the kind of the the ethos that uh, attack is the best form of defense. So we would patrol outside of the perimeter to to try and intercept any threat to uh, air assets in the future. Now that, that that's kind of the, the how the the units were formed. Um, so I did that for ten years and then went to college uh, to you know just so I could uh, get a commission and and then went into the Royal Irish after that. Brilliant. So that was the was that two squadron then that you were in? I, I was in a number of squadrons. Two squadron was uh, the unit I went to Yugoslavia with, um, or the former Yugoslavia. You know, you're getting old when countries don't exist anymore. <laughs> I, I first started in 34 squadron. Um, our, our role was over in Cyprus, so straight out of boot camp, uh, got to spend two years or almost two years on that sunny Mediterranean island of Cyprus. Uh, where we did uh, force protection there, um, which was great. You know, although 
it, I mean, it was the, the ultimate in oxymorons. We were an infantry unit in the Air Force patrolling by boat. Um, <laughs> the trifecta. Uh, yeah. So, <laughs> um, the RAF Akateri is on the southern uh, peninsula of, of the island of Cyprus. So our perimeter was surrounded on three sides by water. So a lot of our, our uh, work was done out of rigid inflatable boats. Um, and as a 17, 18-year-old, I guess I was 18 by the time I finished boot and went there. As an 18-year-old and on a Mediterranean, Mediterranean island saying, you're paying me to, to skip around in this rigid inflatable speedboat uh, with, a, with a rifle, thinking I look cool. Um, it was kind of the best start to a military career I think any young man or any, any person could have. Yeah, well, I want to touch on two things as far as your deployments. So, obviously, Cyprus, that was was that technically peacetime when you were there? It was, um, although we were live-armed outside the wire. Uh, there's a, a there's a, a tenuous relationship between um, between the Cypriots, and, and the, the southern tip of Cyprus is still called the Sovereign Base Area. It, it kind of has a, a, a some ownership by the UK there, so um, it was a it was a not what we would traditionally call an active duty deployment or combat deployment. It was uh, a peace support. So we, we did various um, operations uh, looking at um, counterterrorism, counter narcotics, a lot of narcotics flow through Cyprus, you know, out of the Middle East and Turkey and, and so on through Mediterranean um, into Central Europe. Um, so we would sometimes support the uh, sovereign base area customs as, as basically their guns for hire. Um, but so it was a really mixed deployment. We didn't have much to do with the UN peacekeeping force up on the Greek Turkish or the Cypriot Greek uh, and Turkish border. That was a, a very different operation up there. Right, I, I dated a Greek Cypriot girl when I was in college and um, I guess there wasn't there wasn't the best relationship between the actual country Greece and, and the island of Cyprus is there history between the two? Well, well, yeah, I mean, um, eth- ethnically or culturally, um, Cypriot was a Greek, uh, um, island, and, well, an independent state, but of Greek heritage. And then, and I think it was 82, certainly the early eighties, my, my history is failing me right now. Uh, Turkey invaded, um, and they now own the Northern half of Cyprus. Um, and there's a UN peacekeeping force uh, permanently uh, sort of embedded between the, the, the Turks in the north and the, the Greek Cypriots in the south, um, which, you know, is really bizarre when you consider both Greece and Turkey are both members of NATO, that we, we have a peacekeeping force from the UN sitting between these, these nations that are in the same uh, peace treaty or, or um, uh, defense treaty. Um, so yeah, no, I, you know, I, I think I think sometimes the at least the the Cypriot um, Greek Cypriots that I was friends with while I was stationed there um, personally felt that that mainland or Mother Greece had kind of let them down uh, and didn't really support them during the Turkish invasion. Uh, so I think that's where some of the animosity comes from. Ah, uh, okay, that makes sense. All right. Well, then, so moving to Yugoslavia, obviously a very different um, arena there. So what was that like going from a brand new member of the military to them being put in, in a, a pretty horrendous genocidal arena? Yeah, it was it was tough. We went as uh, one armored divisions um, defense company. Um, and it was quite at that time, we didn't realize how long we were going to be 
uh, in Yugoslavia. So one armored division um, from the British Army got to choose any infantry unit they wanted to 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 babysit them, um, and, and they chose two squadron. Um, when uh, when two squadron RF regiment were going across, they were about ten percent under. Uh, their requirements, so they'd ask their sister squadrons for volunteers, and I volunteered to to go with them. So I went. Um, we as we were uh, spinning up to go, we thought it was going to be a UN peacekeeping force under Umprofor, um, but just before we deployed, it changed to IFOR, which was the NATO implementation force, which gave us a, a much meatier set of rules of engagement. Um, the UN really didn't allow the 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 UN Protection Force, Umprofor, um, really the leeway to, to do the mission they were given. So I was quite pleased that by the time we got in theater, it was under NATO's rules of engagement. Um, so it was, it was as a young, very young, um, starry-eyed, you know, Cyprus was fun. It was, it was probably the most fun you can have on any kind of overseas detachment for as a, as a young enlisted soldier. Um, but, uh, but yeah, Yugoslavia was a lot more serious. I mean, you could see that it was a beautiful country that had been ravaged by a decade of war. Um, the people were uh, had a beautiful spirit, but but it had kind of been broken. Um, I, in my role, I managed to to see a, a an absolute uh, devastation that that sort of raged throughout the entire country. I went from um, Split to uh, Devolji up through Mostar, Vitez, into Sarajevo, across to Banja Luka. Um, so I got to sort of zigzag across the country, um, obviously missing the hundreds of hundreds of minefields that, that had been sown uh, throughout the country. But uh, it was tough. You know, you'd, you'd, you'd meet people. And, and as a, I think, well, I think I turned 21. Did I turn 21 or 20? I think I turned 20 in, in Yugoslavia. Um and uh, you'd meet, I met this old woman one day. She was, I mean, I was 20 years old, so to me she looked super old, but maybe she was 40. But no, she was kind of 60, 70, 80 years old. Um, hard to tell how old she was because, the, you know, the stress of war was, was clearly on her face. And she came up to me and she was talking to me through my interpreter. And uh, she had lived in this house her entire life. Um, she happened to be Muslim. And I was in a part of... Um, Banja Luka that uh, did not want Muslim neighbors. Um, the people that she had lived next to her entire life, 60, 70 years, uh, burnt the house down while they were sleeping in it and she lost her husband in the fire. And because there was nowhere for her to go, she's still living in this burnt out wreck of her house next to the people who burnt her house down. And as an 18, or as a 20 year old, you know, I'm like, how is this possible? How can you live next to, door to someone all your life and then all of a sudden uh, this happens, you know, the, basically the gloves got taken off of society and people got to act out the, their most basis, worst parts of themselves. And it was quite an eye opener. Um, some of the, yeah, kind of driving through villages or towns and every building has a uh, pop marks from small arms fire or, or, um, you know, larger holes from artillery or, or, or tanks. And then at the end of it, there's a giant mound and you kind of realize that's where everyone in the villages underneath that, that, that mound, uh, mass graves and stuff. So it was, it was very, very different. Um, yeah, it's, uh, I was lucky to be there with a bunch of 
guys, and I say guys, our unit was only male. Um, thankfully, the British military has has woken up and opened all roles to women now. But um, but back then it was all guys, and uh, you know we we kind of took it for what it was, and as long as we did a professional job, uh, that was good enough for us. So we would we would we're lucky enough because of our level of training um, would do operations to support. Uh, the special forces units over there um, that were actively looking for war criminals. So I know a lot of my friends and colleagues who had uh, served in that theater felt like it was a pointless, hopeless tour because they don't ever feel like they achieved anything. But kind of being on the periphery of these operations that where the, you know, the SAS were going after individuals um, of high value who had committed these atrocities it kind of felt like at least we were doing a small bit of our part. Yeah, well, and thank you for telling that because that's that's something I always ask anyone who's really been deployed because from the homeland and, you know, I'm, I was born in 74, so we're basically the same age. And when we were younger, it was when the Falklands War happened. And there was a part of me that wanted to be in the military, but also I don't know why, but even as a young age, there was the other part of me that was like, so let me get this straight. A politician can just say something and then all the soldiers get sent there, whether they agree with the conflict or not. Um, you know, so it was an interesting kind of... Um, uh, dichotomy, I guess. But one thing that's, that's underlying is when I speak to these men and women that have been on the show that have been out in these conflicts, there's always that moment where they realize whatever the politics was that sent them there, there are horrible, horrible people that need to be killed and the people that need to be protected from these horrible people. And that then is what, you know, becomes the new motivation, not the political undertow. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, yeah. I was lucky enough to get a commission um, and become an officer in the British Army sort of after after my degree. Um, and I was lucky enough to, to kind of lead a fabulous platoon of, of guys over in Afghanistan. And whether or not you, you know, you agree with going or not, my personal politics or my personal beliefs are like our job is to be professional while we're here. As long as the choices we make on the ground are, in, you know, in line with with the rules of war, you know, the Geneva Convention and our own conscious, con- uh, conscience, um, then that's all I can ask of, of, of myself and, and those with me. And, and I'm, you know, happy to say, I'm proud to say that, that I believe that at least for the time we were there, we made it safer for the people around us. Um, and and it, it, you, you'd go mad thinking about, well, we're still there or nothing's changed or all of this stuff. It's That, that is for politicians to worry about and not, not um soldiers, Marines, airmen, sailor. But, you know, I think it's very similar in the first responder community. Um, you know, you deal with individuals time and time again, the same individuals. And what I've heard some first responders refer to as frequent flyers, you know, and, and you can be disheartened by the fact, well, nothing ever changes and nothing ever gets better in society. But I think as long as you look at every interaction that you have as, as your victory, um, as your mark on society, then that's where I personally took my pride in, in my work from. And, and I think it's one of the things that you kind of need to do to sustain a career um, in either the military or first, you know, a life as a first responder is don't look at the bigger picture because in, in some cases it may seem hopeless. Just focus on, on, you know, the daily victories. Yeah. And just to add to that point with the frequent flyer, something that kind of struck me about, I don't know, halfway through my career that a lot of people I think miss is as a first responder, the people who are doing well don't call you. So all you ever get is 911 calls. 
So that is an echo chamber that you're in, not society. So society might even be improving. They might be becoming more intelligent. But you just see those abusers over and over and over again. So you think the world is full of idiots that keeps calling 911 for the wrong reasons or complete shitbags, depending on what you see, when the reality is that portion of the pie might actually be shrinking, but you're still going to be running more calls because overall you just there's a greater demand on your department. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, but, you know, it's, it's kind of one of the reasons why I'm happy that I managed to absolutely fall on my feet after my military career and and, and um, truth be told uh, my, my wife came over to America when I was in Afghanistan um, because she didn't want to sit around and wait for me to come home she's like I'm gonna go do my master's degree while you're you're overseas um, the program that she she wanted to do wasn't available in Ireland so her choice was the UK or the US and, and she chose the US uh, at Washington State and she very early in her master's career, she met a professor called Brian Viola. Um, Brian uh, became our mentor, but he instantly recognized my wife's talent and, and convinced her to stay and do her PhD. But she was like, well, I haven't seen my husband in a year, so if you want me to stay and do my PhD, he's got to come and join the program too. So this, <laughs> this random American professor started emailing me while I was still overseas in Afghanistan, saying, hey, I'm keeping your wife and I've got a job for you too. Um, at that point, I, you know, that was my, my ninth time overseas. Um, the bit that we hadn't talked about is I spent a lot of time in Northern Ireland, um, in, in between, um, in between Yugoslavia and, and Afghanistan. Um, but, uh, but, but yeah, it's, uh, I got this, this email and I got started this conversation with this professor and I found that, Hey, I can go, you know, I enjoyed education. I enjoyed college. Uh, I can do more of that, but but more importantly, I can work in a research lab that is actually trying to make it better for first responders and, and the military population. And, and it kind of, I know a lot of people who transition out of the military find it difficult because they've lost that sense of purpose or sense of mission. Uh, I was lucky enough to find uh, a job where I could continue that mission um, just on, you know, out of uniform. That's brilliant. Well, I want to go back to that just for a moment because, I mean, Northern Ireland is very important especially with you being from Dublin. So what was your experience like there? You know, what what was some of the the highs and some of the lows of that long deployment in, you know, what is a very tumultuous, uh, what's the right word? Uh, tumultuous, thank you, tumultuous <laughs> environment. I'm going to get my thesaurus yeah. out. A shitty environment. <laughs> so so I, uh, although, yes, we did come back to Dublin and my parents were Dubliners, I grew up in Limerick on the west coast. So if you if you look at a map of Ireland, uh, if you're not familiar with the island, Dublin is kind of right in the smack in the center of the east coast. Limerick is directly across on the west coast in the middle of the country. So I, I spent most of my childhood there before moving to the UK. Um, but, you know, um, from south of the border, um, the, the British military has a, has a long and proud tradition of having um, citizens of the Republic uh, in, in their ranks. Um, Ireland was neutral during World War II, but 200,000 Irishmen volunteered to go, um, which is, you know, if you know much about Irish history, it was only 20 years after we won our independence from Britain, 200,000 Irishmen turned around and volunteered to go back and serve with the, the army that, that we were um, at least uh, philosophically fighting um, only two decades prior, which is, you know, mind-numbing to, to, to think about. But um, I... 
I, it was, it was a, my personal, you know, again, I try to keep my personal politics out of how I operate, um, overseas. I'm from the Republic. Um, romantically, I'd love to see the island united, but my job was to make sure that it didn't happen through violence. Uh, and, and that's kind of the way I approached my work in Northern Ireland is that, yeah, whether or not I want to see uh, Northern Ireland stay part of the Union, part of the Great Britain, um, or be, you know, uh, the, the six counties come back to to the Republic or, 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 you know, the reunification of Ireland, that is neither here nor there. My job is to make sure uh, that violence doesn't play a role in the determination of our country, whether it's republicanism or unionism or, or, or what. And that, so that, that was kind of my, my daily mantra, but you know, there were, there were, there were really bad people on both sides of that conflict. The security forces, the, the, what they were at the time, the RUC, now the police service of Northern Ireland, um, they honestly bore the brunt of it. Um, we got to rotate in and out. Um, the police in Northern Ireland were there, uh, decade after decade and and i have a close family friend who was uh ruc and then then ps and i once they changed i think he did 23 years or 22 years in total um until he finally saw the company psychiatrist and they took his gun away the day they saw him he's like you're done um he has unfortunately severe ptsd which is uh, rampant across the, the the members of that organization um because of the sheer level of violence day in and day out and it wasn't it's not the kind of violence we see in some inner cities in in the u.s it's it's a constant threat um even in your own home uh i I remember sitting in his living room um friday night having a beer with him and uh there's a knock on the door and he's not expecting anyone so the first thing he does is he grabs his gun and he puts it head high to the door and asks who it is uh, you know, and I got to turn that off when I would go uh, back to, to England. Uh, he, he lived with that daily. Um, you know, I, I spent a couple of years over there living out in the community and not, not in a base. And you'd look under your car every morning before you get in it. You know, and I know that first responders, especially law enforcement and in, in the U.S. face a constant threat, you know, that they can be ambushed. They can be that, you know, the, the target of an assault. Um, but it's not quite, you know, to the point where police officers here are having to look under the car every morning before they get in it to make sure there's not an IED strapped to the bottom with a mercury tilt switch. Um, so, yeah, it's uh, it, it was very I only sort of experienced that for three and a half, four years while I was over there. Uh, my friend had to deal with it for 20 plus years. And, and, and that takes a toll, uh, you know, as you know, being a first responder in any country takes its toll. Yeah, well, it's interesting what you say about the bomb because I grew up next to an MOD base. So I, was, I grew up on a farm, but it was an MOD base right next to us. And I remember as a child having to look under the car because that's when they were on the mainland. You know, the IRA specifically were on the mainland blowing up and they weren't, ta- they weren't targeting just military targets. Obviously, they were shopping malls and, you know, very, very civilian base ones. And so I'd, I'd never thought about it till years later. But yeah, we absolutely were, you know, a very legitimate threat because if they, did something to our farm you could literally i mean the fence was i don't know 40 meters from the edge of my farm so yeah yeah so i know exactly what you mean yeah yeah we actually when when we moved to england my stepfather became the farm manager for lord francis pym um and he 
he was at a, a time, I believe, the, the Minister for Defense. So he had an, uh, an armed police um, security detail all the time. So and, and for, you know, for for your American listeners, it might that might not sound too weird. Right. But in the UK, having armed police around, especially back then, um, was was bizarre. You know, we just uh, in the 80s, 90s, unless you were at an airport, you never saw a gun on a police officer or, um, you know, unless they were standing outside number 10. Um, so kind of even from a, an early childhood, there was there was always armed cops around. Um, but uh, and I don't know how much that played into my sort of mindset as a, as a young teenage teenager that hey I'm gonna I'm gonna join the military and, and and whatnot. But but kind of moving back to Northern Ireland because I'm a citizen of the Republic, I had to choose to go. They wouldn't. The British Army won't typically send. Um, you know, Republican or people from the Republic or Irish citizens over to Northern Ireland because of the potential conflict of interest. Um, but like I say, I my my rationale, my motivation was to make sure that whatever political destiny my country had, it wasn't through the you know the bomb, or as we used to say, you know, the ballot box and not the bomb. Yeah. When from me as as a young boy looking at that whole thing, it was. It, it just seemed common sense that you would want the entire country to be back the way it was. I mean, I thought the the British did, you know, with the potato famine and some of the other awful things. You know, I mean, I totally understand <laughs> the resentment and everything. But then when we are England, Ireland, Scotland, Wales, when people say, oh, you know, what are you? I'm like, well, I'm, you know, from the UK, British, whatever. Let's make a new term, meaning all four of us living on these two tiny pebbles in the middle of the Atlantic. Because that's how I feel. Like we're all, we all have mixed blood. We're all you know, English, Irish, Scottish, and Welsh. So I think it's great that we have pride in our countries. But I think that it's also for me. I'm, I'm proud to be just those four countries together. I've never, I've never felt like I'm English because I'm not English. You can't be English when you live on two tiny rocks in the middle. You know that that we are t- completely intermingling. Yeah. Yeah. No. And and you know my. My wife and her her extended family always joke because I'm I'm staunchly Irish um, until our Ireland gets knocked out of the Rugby World Cup and then <laughs> back to being South African again. So uh, so my wife jokes that I have more nationalities than testicles. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm, I'm amassing passports. I feel I'm starting to feel like James Bond now. I got a I got two. I'm working on the third one. <laughs> <laughs> um, so just very quickly before we move on to to how you transitioned, um, where in England did you live when you moved to the mainland? Um, Bedfordshire, for the most part, we kind of first hit Essex and then Cambridgeshire, but they were very short hops. Um, and then uh, Bedfordshire, about eight miles outside of Bedford City. Right. Brilliant. All right. So then you got these emails from the college. So what made you just decide to pull the trigger and actually you know, leave the military and go to education? Well, my, my, I, I could see how much my wife was enjoying it, how much she respected um, the person who then developed into both of our, our mentor and, 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 in fact, the godfather of our child, um, Brian. Um, Brian was, again, a non-traditional academic. He he was a Marine in Vietnam, won a Purple Heart over there, um, came back, became a police officer in L.A. Uh, with L.A. Sheriff's Office. Um, he was a gang sergeant in, in L.A. during the 60s and 70s, became the first U.S. police chief of, of Micronesia. Um, can I plug his book? Yeah, please, plug away. Well, when I say his book, his wife, Cynthia, is, she's a fabulous author. She wrote a book about Brian's exploits as a 
as a U.S. cop or chief and trying to look after public safety in on the islands of you know of Micronesia, and it's a it's a hilarious book. It's it's called Micronesian Blues. It's only about ten bucks on Amazon, but it, it they wrote it in a way that hey, here's all this what you know American white guy making all these cultural faux pas in, in these islands. Um, they they kind of wrote it in a humorous way to to help. Uh, officers who are thinking about doing cr- cross-cultural policing um, learn from his mistakes so they don't have to make them all. But it, it's very well written. Very, it's a, it's a light, easy, funny read. Um, and, and sometimes we need that because um, the, the, the reading that we do do around policing can often be quite dark. Um, but Brian, Brian uh, then became the NIJ, uh, National Institute of Justice, uh, Director of Crime Control. I think he was a GS-15 with the feds. Uh, and Washington State University kind of snagged him. He he had been faculty at UC Irvine and and so on, but gone back to government work. And then we, uh, the University of Wash, or sorry, <laughs> University of Washington, I'd be shot. Washington State University <laughs> uh, s- snagged him, and and he started this lab. And kind of this, his blend of his history of of being a practitioner, going into academia, working on problems that that. I was interested in and now have become near and dear to my heart and, and kind of the practical use of, of simulation technology to, to kind of answer these questions. And, and I, I felt like it was going to be a transition where I wasn't going into academia just to write papers, just to, you know, uh, that it was a chance to give back to both the communities um, that I'd worked alongside, you know, being in the military, but in Northern Ireland, we work hand in glove with, with the police force over there. Um, so, so yeah, it was kind of, it was a chance to, you know, put my, hang my boots up, but, but still feel part of that extended community. But, and I, I, today I work, you know, every week I'm, I'm, I'm working with, with law enforcement, um, in some capacity. So, um, so it made the transition a lot easier for me. Fantastic. All right. Well, I want to start exploring your work now then because there's several elements that really fascinate me. Some things that I've talked about a lot on the show and there's definitely some new areas too. But just to, to kind of start with, um, when you started exploring the world of sleep and sleep deprivation, um, I want to get into the four topics that you wrote about in your paper. But when did you really realize that that, that was, you know, as as a uh, as huge of a contributor to mental and physical health um you know as we now know and you know and and, and to be honest the sleep side of things although uh the lab that that brian started and, and i now thankfully run is part of a, a wider group called the sleeping performance research center and, and that group um is is really world class and, and and there aren't any other groups that have the breadth of sleep research that we have we look at it from mathematical modeling through through cell biology in a petri dish through flies mice rats cats humans in the lab and humans in the field so as a sleep research group we really tick every box which which is unique um but i wasn't interested in sleep i was interested in looking at the performance side of of how we support performance in the military but and law enforcement um but but my one of my colleagues, uh, former Fulbright Colonel from the U.S. Army, um, one of those really underachievers. Uh, you know, he got his M.D. from Harvard and his Ph.D. from Stanford. Slacker. Uh, <laughs> yeah. 
and and not only does he need MD, but he's board certified psychiatrist and sleep physician. So, but um, so Greg Belenke, he studied under the the father of sleep medicine, Bill Dement, and and I remember early on after joining the lab, I think it was two thousand and nine, two thousand and ten. Um, Greg says, Steve, you know, there's, there's three things that every species on this planet that with a brain has to do to survive. They have to mate, they have to reproduce, they have to feed or eat them, you know, they have to eat. Um, and they have to protect themselves from predators. You can't do any of those three things while you're asleep. So if sleeping wasn't important at that, you know, evolutionary basic bio, you know, biological level we wouldn't do it and we wouldn't do it for a third of our lives and every species with a brain sleeps um sharks have kind of gotten closest to, to the, you know they, they kind of sleep with one half of their brain and the at a time so when they're circling the the eye on the outside uh is connected to the side of the brain that's still awake so don't ever try and sneak up on a sleeping shark because you can't um, <laughs> See up on the other side, don't you? <laughs> that's on the inside. <laughs> that's on the inside of the circle. Um, so, so yeah, it's uh, it, you know, once you start, once you sort of work around sleep researchers and 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 really understand how important sleep is to pretty much every part of our cognitive and physical functioning, it's hard not to get fascinated by it. I, I, I kind of. You know, I, although I started in this in this sort of sleep world, a sleep research world, it wasn't something one of my passions until about a year or so in. And you know, after going to lecture and seminar and invited speakers and you know doing the work and seeing the impact that of uh, sleep deprived brain has on cognitive function, on performance, and later on our health, um, it's it's hard not to get get hooked by it. So I've kind of, uh, you know, and I was one of those 18, 19 year old soldiers that honestly believe that if you can't handle sleep deprivation, then you're weak, you know, and thankfully that's, that's starting to change. We realize that it's not about weakness or not being able to cope. And when I speak with first responders and military groups, we try and reframe the argument. It's not about weakness. It's not about not being able to do shift work or, or handle sleep deprivation. It's about supporting performance. It's about being the best version of you. Um, and we, we do this very successfully with athletes. We, especially Lois, my wife, works with uh, a lot of elite athletes, Olympic athletes, uh, NCAA college basketball teams, uh, NFL teams, really looking at their sleep um, their their travel schedules or jet lag, when they should train, when they should you know when they should rest. Uh, it, so it's in tune with their with their body clock, with their circadian rhythms uh, to maximize performance. And I, and I think that sort of ethos is what we need to bring back to the the military and law enforcement community. It's it's not about well, I like my twelves because I get more days off. It's like you know you're dealing with life and death situations, whether or not it's someone else's life or your life. Um, and you really need to be on the top of your game and to do that, you need to be well rested. Yeah. Now the, the message I've been trying to, you know, align on the show is, is, is a two pronged attack. So there's the ownership of the individual, the firefighter, the cop, you know, and then with the sleep side, obviously that involves their sleep hygiene when they get home. But then the other side is obviously administration. You know, if you've got say the fire department, for example, a lot of them work 56 hour work weeks and now they're, they, 
you know, basically haven't staffed their department properly. So now those men and women are asking to be stayed for another 24. You know, I see, I see that it's all very well. And it seems like the dialogue a lot of times is on the officer, on the firefighter, on the medic. Oh, you need to go home and sleep properly and not looking at, as you were saying, the structure of how we do our, our work week as well. Um, so I want to, I want to kind of split this up into two. Firstly, the short term cognitive side, and then I'd love to get to the long term as well. My, my realization was probably about four or five years ago when I heard Doc Parsley, um, Kirk Parsley speak, um, who's a Navy SEAL that, that kind of tripped over sleep deprivation basically with his SEALs. Um, and, uh, it made me realize, oh my, you know, my God, some of these, what we call line of duty deaths in the fire and the police, how many of those were, Based on sleep deprivation, the the fall from the roof, the the getting lost in in a, in a search inside, and then I thought, well, on the on the police side as well, um, the you know the intersection wrecks for for police fire EMS, but also the shootings that we see. You know, why did that person shoot that kid? He was reaching for his driving license, but then no one again is talking about well, how many hours does that officer work this week? Did he get to go home or did he pull a double because they're short staffed? So, but that discussion just does not factor in so huge load loaded question i always do this when i bring this up but what what was your observation on cognition on on the way that some of these these uh shifts are at the moment and how that affects performance of the firefighter and the cop well one of the you know uh, uh i'm grateful that i i often get the opportunity to stand up in front of you know rooms full two three four hundred people uh of first responders and, and so on to to talk about these issues. And one of the, the questions I ask the audience is, do you let your colleagues, your employees come to work drunk? And the, you know, universally the answer is no, we don't. Um, and, and that, that, you know, good, right? People shouldn't be at work drunk, but you're, you're okay with them being at work after they've been awake for 19, 20, 24 hours. Um, researchers, uh, both here in the U.S. and some great ones, uh, Drew Dawson over in Australia kind of did some of the early work uh, equating sleep deprivation to blood alcohol content for many operational tasks, especially driving. If you've been awake for 24 hours, your driving is impaired to the same extent as blowing a .10. Now, why do we allow it? Why do we allow first responders to drive a vehicle if they've been awake that long um they're impaired it doesn't you know just because it's not alcohol or drugs or whatever it doesn't matter um we don't allow it from uh you know there's there's a number of states now that that if you're involved in a fatal collision they will dissect your life and if they can show that you've been awake for 24 hours they'll charge you with a dui um or, or as if you had, you know, you're impaired, but, but we don't do it for our first responders. And, and arguably there are some times when they're driving code, um, that the conditions that they're driving under are more dangerous. Um, so that, that, that's one of those bizarre questions. There's a giant caveat that I have to put here. And, and, and for all of your listeners, if you ever have, you know, researchers or, or academics or scientists say, hey, I've got all the answers, <laughs> then be suspicious. Be, you know, I've got more questions than I have answers. But uh, so one of the giant caveats is that we really don't know how fatigue and sleep deprivation and uh, adrenaline or norepinephrine or, or, you know, that level of excitement that you can get running code or, or being in the middle of a really intense encounter 
we don't know how what that interaction looks like. We don't know um, how it either degrades or supports your cognitive performance. Uh, we've done a little bit of testing around those issues in, in, in my lab. We have use of force simulators and driving sims. Um, and what the data shows is those officers that, that react heavily, or what I would describe as a hot reactor, they have a strong sympathetic arousal, a strong fight or flight response um, in our use of force simulators, tend to uh, do better immediately after in some of our standardized um, testing for fatigue, which, which we use the psychomotor vigilance test, which is a simple reaction time test, that, that the effects of fatigue or sleep deprivation or shift work are temporarily wiped out. But an hour, two hours later, it comes back with a vengeance. So, you know, these kind of this idea that I can I can push through or I can man up or soldier on or whatever term you want to use. You can't fight your basic biology. You need sleep. The only thing that cures sleep deprivation or fatigue is sleep. Um, adrenaline, Red Bull, coffee. Um you know, chew, whatever. They are temporary fixes. Um, it's like having a broken leg and putting a Band-Aid on it. You, you need rest. Yeah, and that's and when we talk about that, that's that's always like after a 24. That's not factoring in the cumulative effect of 10, 20, 30 years of 24-hour shifts or, you know, 12s and 12s. Absolutely. Um, so there's, you know, there's there's some, there's, there's a long history of, of understanding of, of how, consecutive hours at work and consecutive shifts affect productivity and safety and accidents and, and illness in, in, in quite a number of, of industries, you know, manufacturing and, and so on. And, and, and once you go past that nine hours of, of on duty, um, the risk of accident and injury and illness sort of, uh, it gets, you know, it, 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 uh, it goes from from like hour two. Hour one is oddly a little more dangerous than hour two, um, mainly because people don't have their their work head on yet. They're still kind of uh, in that transition from off duty to on duty mode, so you can get some early accidents and, and injuries in that first hour uh, on the job. But then from hour two to hour eight, there's kind of a gentle increase uh, hour on hour for for risk of accident and injury. But after 9, 10, 11, 12, that, that curve inflects upwards, and the risk is significant. Um, one of my colleagues, who, uh, Samantha Reedy, who just graduated with her PhD and, and got a postdoc at Penn, uh, looked at a, um, Brian's data, uh, the tired cops data, looking at uh, citizen complaints and uh, work, you know, shift logs, and and you know, the more hours and the more disrupted sleep you get, the more citizen complaints you get. Um, it's it's you know, we know that the more you work someone, the more likely they are to be off work, injured or ill. Um, the more likely they are to make a mistake, be involved in a collision, and the more likely they are to upset a member of the public, you know, have a complaint generated against them. So. One of the things that we try and talk to um, both police executives, leadership, um, unions about, and, and we need to bring both executives, leadership, um, and, and unions, labor organizations together because this is a shared problem. Um, but we should stop thinking about overtime as, as just costing us time and a half. 
we need to factor in the hidden costs um, of L&I, workers' comp, citizen complaints, and the loss of legitimacy or or perceived legitimacy in the eyes of our communities and, you know, fleet maintenance. Even the, the more hours you're, you're driving, the heavy, the worse you are at driving, so you burn more gas. So there's even fuel costs. But they all get hidden in different budgets, and they're not always, you know, seen by the same people. So we never really get a full picture of how much this fatigue tax or fatigue cost is, is really impacting our operations. Um so yeah, sorry, I went off on a tangent there. No, but, it was uh, a beautiful tangent because it supports exactly <laughs> what I talk about. <laughs> no, so so with the again taking just the, the focus of the fire department for for a moment, we have such a diverse work week. We have the northeast and then some some departments splattered across the country that work in what's in my opinion should be the firefighter, um, you know, standard work week, which is twenty four hours on, seventy two hours off. Um, the, I think what what's tough with with shrinking the firefighter work shift because we do at least have the ability to to lie down for a bit is there are just so many things so many tools to check in training i mean there's just i honestly think that you know by the time it was time to get off your shift you'd only just have done <laughs> everything that you need to do for that day and then it's time to do it all over again but the space in between seems to be where it lies so you've got the 42 hour work week in the northeast but then you've got 56 pretty much most of the country and then 72 which is some of our federal firefighters one day on one day off so that's so the insanity that you take the men and women that you're going to put a weapon on their on their hip or you know driving a, a you know huge piece of fire equipment opposing traffic you know and then trust them with climbing 20 flights of stairs to go find your child that you're going to work them another 16 hours longer than the person that works in the bank you know is is lunacy and and what i love is that you just said exactly kind of my my reply to people like oh well it's going to cost more money to staff yes but you're going to save even more money when you do yes it's going to take a person in that administration with the guts to say this might make me look bad but i'm going to save you so much money down the road but you have to factor in, like you said, the the uh, the sick days, the the workman's comp, the you know the people you kill because your medic pushed the wrong medication, or the the citizen your officer shot because they were so damn tired. You factor all those in, you're going to save the money, the department money. But you have to be long sighted enough to understand that. Yeah, and, and this you know in the UK we have five year budgets. Um, over here, these kind of short budget cycles do not help that long term thinking. Um, and that's one of those issues. And, and, and also it's like, well, it's not out of my, my operational funds. So it's nothing. So we need more sort of collective, but we also need, when I, when I sort of mentioned there that it's a shared responsibility between leadership and, and labor, if, if an executive is not considering, um, protecting their investment in their human capital, they're, they're not really doing what a good leader should do. And if a union a labor organization is not fundamentally about the health and wellness of their, you know, members, then they're not doing their, their core function. Um, so, you know, kind of this kind of collective bargaining, uh, uh, should not just be about protecting, uh, the paycheck or the overtime. It, it should be about protecting the individual. Um, and part of that is sensible restrictions and regulations on how much and how, and how, their their people should work um and 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 even when it comes down to secondary employment 
um, even if an agency gets it right and allows an individual, and this is again the shared responsibility between the organization and the individual, which we you, you alluded to, um, if an organization is doing everything right and giving their employee enough downtime uh, to rest so they do come back to work uh, in a fit state, in a safe state for them and their community, then that employee needs to take that downtime and not have a second job or not, you know, pick up extra shifts where possible. Um, now it's, you know, we all have lifestyles that we want to um, maintain or even, you know, reach. So it's, it's difficult, right? Um, it's difficult to, but there are some studies out there with, with things like interstate truck driving that if you give them enough of a minimum wage, enough uh, of a living salary that people, uh, there's a certain point where they will stop taking extra work and actually live their lives. Um, so, so not only do we need to uh, look at, at the shift works and so on, we need to make sure the pay structure is equitable and that individuals aren't having to or, or choosing to pick up extra, extra shifts on their primary occupation, primary job, or picking up extra duties in their secondary employment because they need to make ends meet. Um, so that, that's kind of it, it. And sometimes, you know, when we look at this problem, it seems hopeless, right? Because it's like, well, what's the point of just doing this? Because there's so many things broken in the system. You know, there's there's pay, there's there's the union contracts, the collective bargaining agreements. There's what the community or the or the city county leadership expect from us. Um, so it kind of seems like such a big struggle to tackle fatigue that people just throw their hands up and do nothing. But but the problem is, is we end up with this vicious cycle where uh, there aren't many agencies, no matter if you're fire, uh, uh, um, police, you know, emergency medicine, there's there's not much, many units out there that are fully resourced, that, that really have everything they need. So there's always this shortfall between what services an organization can provide and what the community wants them to do, what the expectation. And that sort of gap is, is often filled by overtime, um, you know, backfilling that gap with, okay, well, we'll just throw more people at the job. What we need to really look at is the work capacity of those individuals. You know, the, the longer someone is on the job, the less productive they are. Um, so instead of just throwing you know, more hours at it. We really need to understand the people who were asking to work these 50, 60, 70 hour weeks, how productive are they? Now, when you overwork people, you, um, in the short term, uh, uh, whittle away their resilience. And in the long term, you degrade their health and wellness. And that in turn makes them less productive employees. So, you know, kind of this short-term gap of just throwing more more hours at people, filling that, that shortfall with overtime, what you're doing is you're just eroding uh, your workforce. So they're becoming less and less productive. They're, they get sick more often. They, they have to retire earlier. Um, they die after retirement sooner. Um, so we need to kind of turn this vicious cycle around and really understand how we support that resilience and the health and wellness of our employees um, and they need, you know, they need to do their bit too. The employees need to take every opportunity to support their own health and wellness and, and make sure they're fit for duty when they do arrive. 
Yeah, no, I, I agree 100%. I think you know, the ownership falls on us, no question. The One of the, the other knee-jerk responses to um, the changing the shifts is like, oh, well, they're just going to work more overtime. Like, ding, 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 exactly. You know how you make overtime go away? You fill the seats with the people that are supposed to be there instead of relying on them for overtime. So that problem's solved. What else have you got? You know, you're just making excuses. And, and like you said, the the uh, the long-term effects are, are killing your people. I think we, on average, live five years after retirement, the average first responder, and 12 years less than um, the civilian. Um, and when it's funny because that's not even apples-to-apples apples comparison. I've talked about this a few times. You yeah. look at the average drill ground of fire or police, those uh-huh. tend to be a little bit healthier, more resilient mentally and physically, men and women, than your average civilian. So you're probably looking at even greater loss of life as far as lifespan. Yeah, and, and a, a, a good uh, friend and colleague of mine, um, John Violanti, um, if, you're, if any of your listeners are at all interested in the topic of police suicide, uh, I believe John is the foremost um, um, authority on, on, on police suicide in the U.S. He, he, his books are dying for the job and, and one called police suicide, but he's a former New York State cop himself, got his Ph.D. and, and has been working um, with the CDC um, he's faculty at uh, University um, State University of New York up in, in Buffalo, um, and, and he's been looking at the mortality and morbidity of, of law enforcement in, in that city for decades and matching them to a sample of other municipal workers who breathe the same air, drink the same water. And, and you're right, uh, police officers die much sooner um, than their other municipal workers, and they die a lot sooner after retirement than other municipal workers. And and that's not okay. When you when you have individuals, firefighters, cops that are giving their best years of their life to their communities, they should be able to leave that service with with enough health intact to enjoy the pensions that they rightly deserve. Um, you know, and when I, when I do fatigue workshops or talks with firefighters, and and I'm like, hey, you know, if you're if you're piling on the overtime to build that pension, um, you know, especially when in 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 agencies where the pension is you know the the average of the last three or the highest of the last five or whatever system you have to determine what your pension amount is is like hey if you're building that for your widow because you're not going to be alive to spend it then great but you know if you want to enjoy your your twilight years then you have to come out of this profession with your health intact or or at least have have done as little damage as possible um and and putting sleep first uh, or making it a priority, just like we do with diet and exercise, and, and hopefully stress management. They're the kind of the four foundations of health and wellness: sleep, stress, nutrition, and exercise. And, and they need to be all considered at, the, at an equal uh, importance. You, doing three out of the four is not good enough. Um, but I would argue that it's all a foundation of sleep because sleep affects the way we process stress um, at both a cognitive and uh, neurophysiological level it affects the way we eat and how um, you know kind of when and what we eat is affected by our circadian rhythm and and our shift work um, and it affects our ability to recover after after exercise or after strenuous work on duty so so all those you know all four are important sleep is is a foundational part to making sure that the other three are effective for us yeah, I couldn't agree more. And I want to talk about the long-term effects in a minute, but I want to make sure first we get to the counter-bias training. Um, and because, I mean, right now, if you turn on your TV 
I just came from, let's say, I just arrived in America today and never had TV in my last country. Oh, please, those are those white people that shoot the black people. Is that right? You know, because that's all you see on TV. And I know as a first responder, it's complete bullshit. I've been, you know, proud to serve alongside the member, you know, men and women in, in law enforcement uniforms of all colors and creeds. But the story we're being told is horrendous. And like I said, the story that no one is being told is also what led up to that event for that person, for those years they were working, for those shifts prior. So from, from the whole, you know, officer involved shooting both ways, the, the shoot, them shooting and being shot as well. What are some of the factors cognitively for these men and women out there? So to answer that question, I've got to take a step back. Um, it's kind of, kind of tell you how we got into this line of research because it wasn't, it wasn't intentional. Um, although I agree with you, it's incredibly important. Um, we were running a study for, for the Department of Defense, but we were using law enforcement as a proxy. Um, so, so the study was done with, with police officers. Um, they had a minimum of five years on the job, all assigned to a patrol division. And we were trying to understand, um, the impact of shift work and fatigue on operational performance, driving uh, force decisions uh, in a force option simulator, similar to FATS or Milo or, or PRISM, whichever you know agencies around the country are using. Uh, only difference is that we've custom built scenarios that no one else have. Um, we paid professional actors and, and we built scenarios around 30 years of data on how officers have been killed in the line of duty. And, and we were interested in the fatigue side of things. But, but to understand how fatigue affects performance, um, we can measure sleep. We can measure how much sleep you do or do not get. We can measure stress to a certain degree. Um, the, around the driving issues, around driving our, our driving simulators, uh, the metrics around what good driving behavior looks like are, are quite solid and, and we can measure them. But what was good performance in a police citizen encounter, that, that's a really difficult question to answer. And that spurned a line of research uh, with our group that, that our mentor Brian started and I've shamelessly ripped him off and, <laughs> and taken his methodology and run with it and he's, he's quite pleased that I have. Um, but we, we, we developed a methodology to really distill down um, in a valid way what a good police citizen encounter looks like because if we can't measure the performance that we're after how do we how do we say that fatigue is degraded it how do we say um, stress is degraded it so so we've been looking at the impact of sleep and stress on these police citizen encounters under a fine tooth comb um, while we were doing that uh, my wife uh, and colleague Lois James said, hey, you know, our scenarios were based on the demographics of individuals who have um, killed police officers in the line of duty. So when we filmed our scenarios, we have men and women, uh, we have white and black actors uh, and Hispa Hispanic actors, um, and we have the same scenarios. We film the same scenarios where we've just either changed the race, ethnicity, or sex of the actor. Because we were running uh, thousands of scenarios, my wife just did a second secondary analysis of the data, took what we recorded, 
Um, and one of those questions were, well, they knew you were looking at race, so of course they acted differently. Well, well, no, we weren't. We were looking at fatigue for the Department of Defense. This was a secondary analysis done on those data. Um, and, and we found that, that there were differences in the way that police officers were responding if the actor in the video was black versus white. And, and some of them were what uh, the narrative would suggest, and some of them were completely counterintuitive. Uh, and in some of our studies, um, our police officers were hooked up with uh, EEG uh, to look at their cardiovascular, their, their, their heart rate. Um, and, and some were uh, hooked up with um, EEG to look at their, uh, um, their brain activity. And we found that um, police officers and soldiers and Marines, even um, people of color, were having a higher threat response internally, physiologically, both in their EEG readings and their EKG readings um, when the actor was African-American. We also found some of the behavioral cues that if the actor was black, then their hand would go to their weapon quicker. The the weapon would come out of the holster quicker. But the the, the finding that was not expected and and different is that uh, they weren't making more mistakes um, in whether or not they should shoot or, or not shoot. Um, and when shooting was the appropriate response because the video was showing that um, the, the, the actor on, on screen th- posed a deadly threat, uh, officers shot African-American actors slower, uh, approximately a quarter of a second or 250 milliseconds slower. So, you know, the idea that this is kind of counter, um, there's difference going on that yes, there's this internal struggle that, that, um, they were finding, um, black actors more threatening, um, but they weren't making more mistakes and they were actually slower in shooting them. So it was kind of a really, not what we were expecting. Um, Again, this is just a simulation. This is just one, well, actually two lab studies um, that we're drawing data from here. Um, but, but it kind of, it really opened this question to do people respond differently um, based on the immutable characteristics of the individuals they face? Um, we, we then, uh, Lois and I, turned those findings into a training platform Um to look at that that very question. So um, implicit bias training is, is kind of really sort of taken off in the last couple of years. There's a lot of federal funding behind it. Um, we wanted to make sure that if officers were being trained in implicit bias, that it was functional training and that it mattered most uh, at that kind of point where the decision uh, that they make is irrevocable. Right. And that is during these force options. So instead of it being a classroom based, let's talk about our our biases. It was OK. Let's let's put you in a force option simulator uh, with high quality scenarios that we've we've developed and, and see what elements of of this individual's um, you're queuing off of. And the idea is to help officers focus on behaviors, help them understand that the color of someone's skin or their sex isn't what's going to get them killed. It, it's, it's their behaviors. It's the words they say. It's the things they do that are, should be the cues that you, that, uh, and not 
the immutable characteristics that they come to the scene with. Does that make sense? No, oh, it does completely. And there's just another factor that I've seen a lot um, yeah, that people also don't factor in, which is just the level of training. So I know that, you know, a lot of these agencies, the qualification may be simply standing in a range and, you know, hitting a target with six shots and, and that's it. And we had uh, Tim Kennedy come to Ocala here and ran Sheepdog Response, which is an amazing two-day class they do. And there's, there's you know, live weapons training where you actually, you know, you rent a range, so you're out in the open, you're moving, you're doing, you know, exertion first and then firing. Um, and then there's a, an arm component, like a jiu-jitsu component as well, with and without weapons. But again, it was it was like pulling teeth to get the agencies here to send anyone. I know they were very frustrated because even day two, some of the officers didn't even come back, you know. So, um, you know, I saw it very, very sadly in the the men and women that I, you know, that, that protect my family here. And I'm sure there are some great officers. But, you know, that's another thing that people got to remember is, is that person only good at standing in a gun range or have they actually had the kind of training that would allow them to make a good decision under stress with a weapon. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and it's, that is, uh, that's one of the, the areas where we, we um, as taxpayers really fail our first responders is because we expect them to perform like functional athletes. Hey, you know, go climb that 25 flights of stairs, rescue my child, then carry them down, fight the fire, make sure you don't damage any of my stuff while you're doing it. Or, or officers on, you know, make these life and death decisions, but we're only going to give you 24 hours of training per year. Yet, you know, when we look at professional athletes, they spend five days a week training for, for a 90 minute game, um, week after week. And the consequences are just whether or not they win or lose a game. And it's, it's, it's odd where we're laying, we're weighing, you know, someone's life, um, and we don't give them any training, but we're happy, you know, the athletes and I don't know we as taxpayers don't don't pay for that but it's but we're expecting that kind of level of performance and and our military you know in the military in the army we train for months and years to go away on a six month deployment and then we come back and we train for months and years to go on the next one whereas police officers get the bulk of their training and, and I'm not as familiar with the firefighter community so I apologize but 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 police get the bulk of their training in that basic academy um, anywhere between 16 and, and 30, 40 weeks max. Um, they get a little bit of in-service training, you know, w- with the FTO program writing or PTO program writing with, with a seasoned officer. Uh, and then that's it. Good luck. You know, you'll get qualification every quarter, uh, every six months, every, every year. And, and, and it's, unless you're in a specialty team, there really is no budget for your time to train or budget to send you to training. Um, I, I was lucky enough to spend 2015 embedded with a police department. I, I physically moved my office off the university campus into their police training facility. Um, and I was on the range pretty regularly because I enjoy shooting. Um, you know, having come from the infantry, it's, it's kind of one of the things I find therapeutic. And I, it was it was noticeable to me as an outsider that the individual cops on the range were the ones who didn't really need to be there. They were dedicated. They were SWAT guys. They were they were on it. And the individuals that really needed to be there showed up once a year for qualification. Um, but but yeah, it's 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 a twofold thing. One is is not having the money or resources to send officers away. But the other thing is, is 
we need to appeal to the professionalism of the first responder that it's also on you to make sure that you keep your skills at the highest level. And, and that's asking a lot when they're being run ragged, you know, going from shift to overtime to, to back to shift again. When do we have time to train? Yeah, no, I, I agree 100%. It's always kind of struck me as, as strange where in the fire department world, most of us will send ourselves to these academy classes. So let's take extrication, for example. Like I, th- I put myself through even now, and I'm, I'm technically retired on paper. I just volunteer very, very infrequently. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's a skill where you have to keep what they call tool time. You know, you're cutting people out of cars that are mangled. You need to be proficient at it. But this is something that, you know, these first responders pay out of pocket. They use vacation days to go to the academy for a week away from their family to a job that only applies to the job that they do. You cannot stand on the motorway or the freeway with a, with a jaws of life, hoping someone crashes so you can charge them $200 to cut them out. You know, there's no other application for that at all. So, like you said, there's absolute ownership, you know, and, and a department can put a gym in, but you need to get your ass in there and train, you know, but the same with, with, with weapons and, and jujitsu or, or combatives. There needs to be training. Like, why do you think that some of these men and women are shooting when they shouldn't have? Not taking the blame off them, but if they've never, if they've only had to qualify, that's it, the bare minimum. They didn't have to do any sort of unarmed combat through the year. There isn't even a fitness standard, you know, then you're setting them up for failure. And there's the most people, like you said, the ones with the most ownership, many of, you know, whom function despite their department, they'll keep in shape. They'll pay their own gym membership. They'll go to the range. They'll buy their own ammunition. But shame on the department if, if that's what they have to do, because like you said, the, the taxpayer needs to understand is the more you allow these people to cut these budgets, the lesser the service is and the more chance that your house might burn down or your teenager might get shot reaching for his driving license. Right. And, you know, and, and again, like with the fatigue issue, um, the, the, there, there is a return on investment for, for training adequately. And, and one of the interesting things, one, one of the agencies I worked with, they had an analysis done of the force that their officers were using based on the level of resistance that they were met with and, and kind of looking, you know, first blush, you're like, Oh, these, these individuals are, are kind of the hotheads, the meat eaters who, you know, they're always involved in use of force. They're always, you know, they're always there. And a lot of them were in fact, DT instructors. But when you, when you analyze the, the level of force they were using based on the level of resistance they were met, it was perfectly adequate and they, they were the individuals that stepped up and, and stepped into uh, contact with, with individuals who, who were actively resisting or assaultive or so on. The individuals uh, who are not as proficient um, with use of force were using an, a disproportionate amount of force to, to subdue resistance. Guess where your lawsuits come from? You know, especially with body cams and cell phone cameras and so on. Um, if you have someone who is not um, confident, comfortable, proficient with use of force, there's a potential for it to go um, very negative. So when when we are looking at when we you know there's a national conversation about yes we need to better train officers in de-escalation and and um, crisis intervention and and so on. And I am a huge advocate and proponent for for those elements. I've worked. Um, 
with, with a number of, of uh, agencies and you know talk with a number of federal agencies around those issues. But if you want to have um, a, a, an individual, a law enforcement officer, be able to de-escalate a situation, they have to be confident and comfortable with their ability to use force, or else they're going to be operating out of a, you know, a fear-based brain. Um, so when you're training officers in de-escalation skill sets, whether or not it's a you know verbal judo or or motivational interviewing or or whatever the format happens to be, it should never be at the expense of training them for using force because they'll never be able to access that, that training if they're under threat um, and not, not comfortable in that skill set. Absolutely. And, and I know I've known some, you know, very, very dangerous men and women in my, my life so far. And there's nothing more disarming, dis- disarming, <laughs> nothing more disarming than that look someone has when they know they can take care of you. You know what I mean? So whereas that, like you said, the fear, the lack of self-confidence, um, that's the, the, they're going to smell it. There's, there's some very mean, nasty people out there that the moment they look at you, they already know that you're, you're scared. So the more, efficient your men and women are you know you want you want your police officers to be like the sas they should be the best you know marksmen the best um you know at unarmed combat all these areas because these are the people you're asking to protect you when someone's trying to murder you so yeah um and it's a funny story one of the things that you talk about it being disarming my my wife would have this had this odd uh, reflex of whenever she stepped in the boxing ring she would start yawning um, and, and it was her body's way of getting more oxygen in to prime her muscles uh, before the bout. But the look on her opponent's faces when, you know, they're kind of got that pent up nervous energy and, and my wife's in the other corner, the opposite corner yawning <laughs> <laughs> like it was just another day in the office it was it was quite amusing. Well, someone was telling me as well, I forget who it was, one of my guests that, yeah, yawning is one of the known um, stress responses. And, and like you said, it, it puts more oxygen in the mind it doesn't mean that they're scared but yeah that it's, it's a normal thing because i remember um i used to yawn when i was in crowds and it was i think that kind of self you know um oh what's the right word i, I was just kind of anxious i guess not scared of crowds have just felt awkward and so yeah i remember i remember yawning so it's funny you say that yeah and and you know that's one of the things that that um i'm fascinated by and, and an area of research that i would like to sort of extend into a, um, is understanding this this intercept between operational performance and, and the fight or flight response or the sympathetic response um, because it, it does things that are really unhelpful. You know, in, in, in years gone by when we needed that, that fight or flight response to, to run when there was a rustling in the long grass and the saber-toothed tiger was going to come out and eat us if we didn't run or, or whatnot. But it, it does things that are so unhelpful in, a, in, in for example, a gunfight, right? It, it, it kills fine motor control. It kills hand-eye coordination. Um, it, it restricts oxygenated blood flow to the prefrontal cortex, which is the moral decision-making part of our brain. Um, and I, in, this is where I'm kind of taking my researcher hat off and putting my, my old practitioner hat back on. A lot of it is to do with the mindset. Uh, and the confidence that of an individual when they go into battle, um, that they believe that they have the facility to win, um, a- and that needs to be facilitated through an appropriate level of training. Right now, what about realism of training? Because that's thing that's something I've seen 
And then you, you talked about administration. There's, there's some departments where the administration and the unions are fantastic. And there's some departments where the unions are worse than the bloody administration, you know, protecting people because they know they're, they're just, you know, going to humiliate themselves when it comes to training, which is the whole point of training in the first place is to make your mistakes there. But so now you can't train when it's too hot. You can't train when it's raining. You can't train when it's dark. You can't, my heart rate can't go over 87 beats per minute, whatever the hell it is, you know, and it's ridiculous. And it really, ties the hands of the men and women running these training departments that are trying to bring realism. So what have you seen with as, as far as stress in training and then carrying over to, to performing on the streets? Well, again, that's, that's one of those, um, one of those really interesting areas where we really don't know an awful lot. I'm, I'm actually lucky enough to right now, I'm editing a special edition of the, the journal, um, policing an international journal. Um, uh, specifically on this topic of what works in policing, because there's so much out there that um, that either people are trying to make a buck out of training first responders, or people genuinely believe they're doing a good job, or genuinely be- genuinely believe that that what they're teaching is making a positive difference. But for the most part, we really don't know. There, there's been very little research around whether or not different trainings, training offerings actually change performance in the field. Um, Lois and I currently have a study running funded by the uh, Department of Justice looking at whether or not bias training, um, uh, different types of bias training actually changes the way officers interact with people based on a pre and post analysis of body cam footage. Um, So there's, there's very little of that. What I have seen, and I've been lucky enough to work with a great organization out of Oregon. So their Department of Public Safety Standards and Training, their version of POST. Um, in, in the state of Oregon, there's one police academy for every agency. It doesn't matter if you're state police, Portland Bureau, or you know, uh, a little town in eastern Oregon. You all go to the same police academy. Um, and in, I believe it was 2013, the state legislature passed a law to say that police training has to be evidence or research-based which really threw the cat amongst the pigeons because although I believe a lot of the content they were teaching was good, we couldn't show it was effective. So we've been, we've been the last three and a half years been rewriting their police Academy um, with an organization called the center for policing excellence. Uh, Again, when it's a subunit of this state body um, starting with a blank piece of paper and understanding how do we support performance in the field? That's, that was our goal. We started Instead of looking at what was being taught and what we could tweak, we're like, no, what does a new police officer coming out of a basic academy need to be able to do? And then how do we build the training to support that performance? Um, And I've been lucky enough to actually test every recruit that comes out of the academy uh, through a series of force option simulators to see when we're adding in behaviors into the academy, does it make a, a difference? Is it changing their behavior in the last week of their training? My goal is to follow them into their you know, into the field, into their FTO, PTO programs and, and beyond. Um, but, but that is expensive and, and, and time consuming and difficult work, but, but we're getting there. But one of the major, um, major elements of what we've done and what I'm kind of most proud of working with this organization is that we have completely stripped away the siloing of training. So if it doesn't matter if you're in the defensive tactics building, you're still being, expected to perform um, in a procedurally just way to apply um, 
the law correctly. So a, a, a use of force instructor is not just assessing whether or not you can apply a wrist lock or an arm lock. They're also assessing your level of communication, whether or not you're uh, tactically sound getting there, whether or not um, you know you you are acting under the color of authority, whether or not you have legal jurisdiction. You know, so this kind of combination of training where it's um, we are we're, we're we're sort of stripping down this siloed nature where hey today I'm doing firearms so all I have to worry about is firearms or today I'm doing wrist locks or defensive tactics or, or you know takedowns whatever it happens to be um, because that's not the way we operate in the real world right um, everything needs to be trained now again you have building blocks to this it's not day one um, it's it, we're building this you know very systematically over the 16 weeks um, that we have them at this academy and uh but the idea is that we are training in as real a condition yet being safe um, because uh, at the end of the day for that academy at least they do belong to another organization you know they're, they're, they're someone else's employee but it's it's to answer your question um, we really don't know we really don't know in, in many cases um, how training is affecting performance in the field. And, and, and that's a failing on the part of researchers. Um, it's a failing on the part of funding agencies, not really understanding, um, that evaluation is, is needed. Um, and it's a part, a failing on the part of agencies that are willing to throw hundreds of thousands of dollars at training without knowing if it's effective or not. Yeah, and I think that's a, a definitely a common theme. People uh, write to me all the time, like, can you send me the studies on seat deprivation for the shifts in fire departments? Um, I'd love to if someone would do one. But even though we've been killing our firefighters for, you know, what, 50, 60 years now with the way that we're doing business, there's still like, next to no, you know, no research out there. And, and I had Sarah Janke on who's done a lot of research on the, the health side, but when you get to the spe specifics, and I think training will be another fascinating one for us, um, there just isn't much research in our community, which again, you know, really kind of shows the <laughs> the lack of interest, I think, in the well-being of first responders overall. I mean, we get told, thank you for your service all the time, but, and then the other, you know, on the other hand, they're shutting down fire stations because of budget cuts. So, um, yeah, I mean, I think it would be fascinating to see, like, from a, a scientific point of view, what would be the most efficient way of doing a fire academy, a police academy, so that they are as best prepared for that very first call when they, they hit the street. Yeah. So, I'm, I'm you know, we, we will be writing up and, and publishing our work with, with the Oregon State Academy. Um, you know, I'm, I'm a little biased because I've been uh, part of the, the development of this new academy, but I think it is a model um, moving forward. But, but to kind of go back to your other point, um, Lois and I have two studies running right now. One is halfway through and one is starting in January. Uh, but one is we're looking at the impact of 12 hour shift work on nurses. And we're looking at both patient safety and nurses safety in this study where we're bringing nurses directly from the hospital after the third consecutive 12 hour shift days versus nights. Um, and they, they come into our nursing simulator where we have a, an, a laird old, uh, sim man, you know, uh, a that bleeds and cries and talks and sweats and, you know, has, has realistic, um, sound internal sounds uh, and they do a med surge simulation which requires them to you know do dosage calculations to, to push drugs to 
you know, to identify this kind of slowly evolving deterioration in, in symptomology of, of the, the doll or the, the simulation. Um, and then once they've done that, they come across and drive one of my driving simulators home uh, because one of the most dangerous times for any um, medical professional is driving home after a graveyard shift. It kills kills more medical professionals than anything else. Uh, so, so that is a study where we're seeing or, or we've been, been looking at, at specifically the impact of 12-hour night shifts on, on, on patient safety and, and, and nurses' safety. The other study that starts in January is we're working with a large municipal police department, uh, and we're going to be doing a comprehensive fatigue management. So uh, looking at, at training every officer, uh, looking at training the supervisors in, in, in appropriate fatigue, uh, risk mitigation, uh, looking at their policies and procedures, and tracking all of the officers, and it's over a thousand officers for uh, looking at their sleep, whether or not the, impl- the, the, the changes that we're making in training and policy and, and, and so on are actually having a positive effect and not just on the officer's sleep and health and wellness, but also on their performance. Um, and that's important. We need to be showing that if we do everything right uh, in regards to fatigue so, mitigation and uh, it, it, it's better for the officer personally, both, you know, mentally physically, uh, emotionally, but it's also better for the community and the agency that they're actually performing better, having fewer collisions, having fewer citizen complaints, having, you know, fewer cases, uh, tossed out. Um, you know, so, so it's, it's kind of, uh, it's, it's going to be, it's a large study. It's, it's almost a million dollars from the department of justice. Um, and we start that in January. So I'm excited about that. So yes, you're right. There's not enough work out there. Um, there, there's people like myself and Lois and Brian, uh, who have been, and Brian from much, much longer than any of us sort of banging the drum saying, we need better research. We need more information. Um, but we're slowly getting there, which, which for people like, like you on the front line, it's, it's not enough, right? You need help now. Um, and, and I'm happy to go anywhere and talk to anyone about what I can do to help support you know, first responders in getting better sleep, lowering their stress, being more healthy. Um, but I, I don't have all the answers either. Um, but, but I think uh, any agency that wants to do better, uh, any individual that wants to do better, there are tools that we can give you to, to make a start, right? To understand your hygiene, sleep hygiene, to understand how, how fatigue and, and, and sleep affects stress your emotional regulation your relationships at home and you know with friends and colleagues how it affects your nutrition and in your 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 mental health and um and and your ability to recover after exercise and so on so there there are things that you can do at the individual level and 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 for agencies there are things that we can work with to to help them understand the risk uh, of fatigue in their organization and, and maybe try and flatten it. And, and just, there's just some real, they sound simple, but they're embedded in culture and, and policy and collective bargaining. Like, like this idea of bidding for overtime based on seniority. Um, from a health and safety point of view, it is the dumbest idea in the world to allow individuals who have had more years of wear and tear uh, and are on average in worse health because they've been doing the job longer to take the lion's share of, of the overtime 
um, is just, it, you know, we need policies that, you know, if an agency has to run overtime to meet the, de- the needs, and, and we've sort of spoken how that is counterproductive in the long run, but if they are having to do it, at least flatten it, at least share it, share the pain. So it's not killing the older, uh, more seasoned first responders. Yeah. Now, just I want to get to some closing questions. I know you got to go soon, but one thing we didn't touch on was the the long term effects. So, if you could just give me an overview um, of the the long term effects, metabolic cancer, heart, and mental um, that you see from sleep deprivation over a career, that would be fantastic. So, so yeah, um, and and uh, I don't know if you have links or or whatnot, but please, uh, you know, if you want to put my contact details at, at the bottom of your podcast, and I can send some of the academic work to anyone who requests it. Um, but but uh, we, we did a review paper, I think it was 2017, uh, looking at, at these four main health issues, cardiovascular, uh, metabolic, uh, cancer risk, and, and mental health. And, and sleep impacts or sleep restriction, shift work, sleep deprivation, they, they all impact us at, at a core biological level because we are Fundamentally, as a human, as, as a species, we are fundamentally designed to be awake during the day and sleep at night. And anything we do counter to that comes with a cost. It comes, uh, obviously, we've talked, you know, a cognitive cost, a performance cost, a safety cost, but it comes at a health cost too. So, for example, if we look at uh, metabolic health, you know, a lot of first responders are overweight. Um, and it's not just because they're sedentary. If you are awake at night, um, the hormone that is responsible for uh, our appetite, leptin, is produced as we're awake. So the longer we're awake, the more hungry we get, the more we want to eat. But ghrelin, the, the, the um, hormone that is responsible for our society to say, hey, you've had enough to eat, um, you can stop eating now is slave to our circadian rhythm so we can be awake at night we can eat and we can you know we can stuff our faces but we don't feel satisfied so we overeat um mainly because we're not biologically designed to eat at night our insulin response to food is different in nighttime hours because all of our organs in our body all of our major organs have circadian rhythms and they're designed to do to process uh, and have different functions, whether or not it's daytime or nighttime. Um, so our insulin production and our, our, our you know, the way we uh, process food through our system is compromised by feeding at night. Um, so we typically will end up with uh, metabolic disorders, um, higher BMIs, um, and there's a higher prevalence of type 2 diabetes in, in people who work graveyard shifts and, and, and 24-hour shifts. Um, partially because, you know, we're, we're feeding at the wrong times of day. There's some great work out of the University of South Australia um, that, especially with bush firefighters um, over there, looking at feeding cycles around uh, first responders. Uh, and again, if any of your uh, listeners are interested, I can kind of direct them to, to the resources uh, around that. Um, so cancer risks. Uh, when you're operating a, a, in a 24 environment or, or working at night, uh, um, typically it's, you know, in, in, for example, nurses have a higher rate of breast cancer and it's um, surmised that it's, it's partially due to um, being awake at night and being under hospital lighting. Uh, being under light environment at night 
suppresses our melatonin. Uh, melatonin is a free radical scavenger and, and kind of one of those things that protects us. So kind of excessive light exposure in, in nighttime hours is affecting our, our body's ability to protect ourselves from cancers. Um, with uh, cardiovascular health, we have a, a desynchrony of our HPA axis, which is, a, you know, the um, uh, hypothalamus pituitary adrenal uh, system that, that is our stress response. Um, and when, uh, when we are exposed to stressors, especially threatening, you know, life-threatening events uh, at night, the system that is designed to um, protect ourselves and have an appropriate response to the stress is out of whack because it's, again, not designed to function at night at, at a core biological level. So we have an inappropriate stress response. Um, our stress hormone cortisol has a circadian rhythm and, and it, you know, it, it's higher in the early hours of the morning anticipates and if you're constantly exposed to stressors at odd times of the day, it can deregulate your ability to produce cortisol appropriately at the right time. So we end up having elevated cortisol levels or stress hormone through, uh, through the, you know, the systems of first responders and then mental health, uh, the, the other, you know, again, it's one of those things that does not get talked about enough. Um, it's the number one, uh, killer of first responders in my mind. You know, we, 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 we look at line of duty deaths, we look at heart attacks and so on. Um, there are very few people accurately tracking the amount of suicides um, that are happening in the first responder community. Um, the um, not, and not just suicides, but you know, behavioral health issues, mental health issues that officers are medicating themselves, you know, or, or firefighters are medicating and, and having addiction issues and so on. So we are not again. Um, with with this inappropriate stress response and and so on, uh, exposing people to stressors at night um, is not the way we're designed to function as humans. And and, and uh, sorry if I'm rambling. Um, no, I'm loving all this, please. Yeah, but but again, um, I you know as, as one of the authors, I, I'm 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 happy to to send this review paper that kind of will step you through that kind of core biological um, issue of why why have, have these issues occur at that at that um, level what sort of uh, disorders they develop into and then how uh, our role at, you know working in graveyard shifts or working in, in, in times where we're not synchronized uh, with our circadian rhythms you know looking at for example when we go back to feeding it has all of these issues around inappropriate hormone production, uh, uh, bad insulin resistance, but what's available to eat at 2 a.m.? You know, if you're working in, in an area where there's, you know, there are not healthy options to eat, uh, it's being exacerbated and we crave the wrong type of food at 2 a.m. Um, we, we crave high fat, high carb foods and, and things that we shouldn't be eating. So, so yeah, it's, it, there's a lot, there's a lot there. There's a lot we do know. We don't know everything yet, but, but there's a lot, uh, that we do know, um, in that regard yeah and that's that's been amazing to get so many people who are you know well versed in the sleep medicine side you, you they all agree like all these experts agree so when people say oh how does it pertain to the fire department it's like well there isn't the research for a lot of these areas however 
you don't have to use a, a vivid imagination to see how this pertains to us or, or physicians or, you know, mine workers, prison guards, whoever it is, you know, this all applies along. If you're not seeing the sun, if you're working X amount of hours, if you're working this work week, it's going to have the same effect. And then open your eyes, look in, look in your department where you work and how many people do you know that are, are drinking or, or doing drugs, you know, whatever it is. And you'll see that, you know, observational evidence that will back up your hypothesis that's aligned with so many of these papers that you, like you won, excuse me, like the one you did. So, so that, that's kind of the, you know, one of those interesting things that I find is that, you know, we work with, we work with uh, military law enforcement, um, nurses, athletes, other, other people in, in my research, in our research group work with uh, interstate truck drivers and, and pilots and so on. And it seems like we have to convince every um, occupational group we work with that this science applies to them. Like we're all human beings. We all have basic biological limits. Um, And yes, there are some issues of self-selection of people who may be more resilient or or start with a better base fitness or or have a higher tolerance for pain or discomfort will gravitate into the military and law enforcement and, and first, you know, firefighting. But at the end of the day, we're all human beings uh, and we all are sort of bounded by these general limitations that that we we do very differently. You know, there are various things that we do genuinely have individual differences on the amount of sleep we need. But it's between roughly seven and nine hours. It's not five hours. It's not three hours. Humans can't function well on that. Um, Some people are genuinely larks. They like the mornings better than the evenings. Some people are owls, they're more evening people, but we're talking a matter of two, three hours. We're not talking about, you know, true people who are truly best in the middle of the night. And then there are some people who can handle circadian disruption, who can handle having irregular sleep patterns a little better. Um, But but when I work with first responders and they go, yeah, I get all that, but I'm okay on five hours or I'm okay on six hours, what I hear is I'm okay being 80% or I'm okay being 90% efficient um, because no one, no human is, is okay uh, on five hours of sleep. Brilliant. Well, thank you for saying that because I couldn't agree more. And it's funny because one of the examples people get is so many of our presidents, like, oh, they, they have a resting heart rate of 12 and a half beats per minute and they sleep one and a half hours. I'm like, all right, let's say that that was even true. These are politicians, so most of the shit that comes out of their mouth is bullshit anyway. But let's pretend for a moment that it is, is true. Have you seen the before and after of these people? They look awful. I would I would never follow their sleep schedule. <laughs> yeah. and, and like Churchill was famous for only sleeping four hours a night, but I think he had two 90-minute naps during the day. I mean, you know, so he was getting his sleep. It just wasn't – but he also put on a little weight while he was in, you know, as the PM. Um so, so yeah, it's, there are, you know, if you look at, you know, natural distribution, there are people who are in those tails. Um, there are people who genuinely need 10 hours and there are some people who probably can, can do quite well on, on six, but they're, you know, 0.3 of a percent of the population. They're, we're not mm-hmm. talking about every firefighter or every cop I meet going, yeah, I'm okay on five. No, if you were, if you were performing at a high level on five, you'd be Bill Gates. You'd be, you'd be Steve Jobs. Um, you'd be, industri- you know, captains of industry. Um, it, it, it's, there are very, very, very few people who operate at their highest level. 
some jobs require uh, don't require you operating at 100%. Uh, and if that's what if that's the sort of occupation you want to be in, then, then that more power to you. There will still be long-term health um, issues by not sleeping enough. But I honestly believe that first responders need to be operating close to 100% to keep themselves and their communities safe. And that's that's the biggest argument I have for taking sleep seriously. If you train, if you eat right, if you if you meditate, if you do yoga, if you if you look after everything else, just put sleep up there. Um, and, and, and you know, I often get the question as well. You know, do Fitbits work for tracking my sleep, or do does this device work, or does that device work? The general answer is they all overestimate the amount of sleep you're getting. Um, Naval Biomedical Research Group in San Diego have been kind of doing comparisons of these commercially available uh, fitness or wearables uh, that that monitor sleep, um, uh, and they've all over specify how much sleep you get. But my answer to people's question are, yeah, they work because they're making you think about your sleep. Uh, and that's kind of what I would ask of your listeners is that just make it a priority. Don't, you know, put it up there with nutrition and exercise uh, and understand that if you want to be a complete first responder and a complete husband or wife or complete father or mother, that, that you need to put yourself in your own sleep uh, first um, bef- so you can give the best to your community and your family. Brilliant. Well, I just want to thank you so much. I want to talk about where people can find you, but I got to let you get get to uh, your your lunch date. So, um, <laughs> I'm on the the web page for this episode, jamesgearing.com. I will put the links to the the paper that we're talking about, and then the other ones that you have. Uh, where can people find you online? Um, so my lab's website. Um, if you Google. Or if you sorry, if you put into the web address uh, labs l a b s dot w s u for Washington State University dot edu. So that's l a b s dot w s u dot edu, and then forward slash shot s h o t. That should work. Um, it stands for simulated hazardous operational tasks. Brilliant. So, so that wasn't the University of Washington. It was not. And I, <laughs> I cannot believe I said that. Those words should never come out of my mouth. Brilliant. Uh, uh, no, they're 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 a great. They're another good university in our state. Um, but uh, we have a a, a strong uh, football rivalry with them, and and uh, and they handed it to us this year. So that's not. It's it's still raw. Sore subject. <laughs> All right. Well, Steve, again, thank you so much. I mean, Rick, um, you know, connected us before, but I knew a little bit about your story, but this conversation has been amazing. Obviously, your, your military career, but then your work with our community, especially, you know, do, bringing to the forefront the very things I think that people need to understand, the, the real true factors to some of these. Um, and I, and I think that this is an underlying issue for, so many things that are you know dragged through the media as well like the you know, the officer involved shootings we have to look at the tactical athlete as that an athlete and look at the way that our other sports heroes train and rest and recover and look at the gaping gap between the two and realize that as a profession we need to create an environment for our men and women to thrive not break down absolutely and i, and I would just like to say you know thank you to all the first responders who have facilitated our work because without good partnership with first responders we can't do our research so so thank you to the, the men and women 
out there that that uh, not only serve and protect us but also uh, allow us to stick our pointy noses into their professions and lives to try and make it better. 